The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is best-selling author and healthcare executive Haley Fisher-Wright, MD, author of Back to Balance, The Art, Science, and Business of Medicine. We've come a long way from the days of house calls. Chances are your doctors stare at computer screens instead of looking at you, and you probably spend more time in the waiting room being with them. New York Times bestselling author, Dr. Haley Fisher-Wright, helps patients see what happens behind the curtain in healthcare in order to better cope with modern healthcare realities. Dr. Fisher-Wright is president and CEO of MGMA and was named one of Modern Healthcare's top 25 women in healthcare in 2017. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on, doctor. It's nice to be on, Catherine. Thank you for the invitation. Well, as I sort of uh, alluded to in, in the introduction uh, it, and what you talk about in your book, it is a new healthcare system that we have today. And we have to address some of the problems in our new healthcare system. And it is the responsibility not only, not only of the physicians and uh, people who are in healthcare, but also we as consumers. So your book and you help us to cope with some of these new healthcare realities. I guess we should begin to talk about what are some of these new realities? Why is it different now in terms of the healthcare that we get, say, different than it was 20 years ago? Sure. Well, it's, it's funny that you mentioned it's a new healthcare system. What I would say is it's actually an old and broken healthcare system, but the relationship of the patient and the physician has changed, and that's what's new. So as a patient, it used to be, and everyone talks to me about the fantasy days of when it was a Marcus Welby-type image where you'd go in and some uh, beneficent gray-haired man would lay clean-smelling hands on you and make everything better, which actually, in all reality, probably never happened to you're now a consumer you, we want to talk to you about your copay first. We, you know, these are the things you need to do. And if you get a bill at the end and you don't understand it, we don't understand it either. So what we're talking about is moving from a patient, which is somewhat of a passive type person, into being a partner, which is much more uh, responsible, much more engaged. And a partner with a physician has responsibilities and rights and actually, the onus is on us as consumers to ask the right questions to make sure that we're getting the product we want. All right. So let's talk about what are some of those things that we need to do as consumers so that we get what we want. You know, how do we do that? What are some of the key issues, would you say, for us as a consumer? Absolutely. So you know, let me give a, a good example. So my parents are in their 70s. And, um, you know, as, as a... 50-year-old who's 
you know, in that kind of odd period where you're transitioning or you parenting your parents, when I go with them to the physician and they have health issues, as people who age do, their perspective is, well, the doctor will take care of me. So here's where one of the transitions occurs. As a consumer and as a partner, you need to be your own advocate. So what I tell people all the time is ask, ask, ask. What I recommend is you actually walk into your doctor's office with a list of three questions. And I have them written down. Even when I go, I have them written down just so I don't forget or I don't get swept away in what's going on in the meeting. First question I always ask is, what is the purpose of this visit today? Because you'd be surprised how many times patients will go in to see their doctors and not, and they have an idea of here's what I'm here for, but the doctor has a different idea of why the patient is there. Number two, if this visit is going to be successful, what needs to happen? In other words, what do we need to discuss? What are the things I need to walk out of here with? What are the next steps? So that, so that both the physician and you are, con- are really clear on what's next. And then my favorite question, probably in every circumstance, not just in this one, is what didn't I ask that I need to know? Because the thing is, the position of the physician used to be 20 years ago, Catherine, um, the physician was the receptacle of all medical knowledge. Well, in all fairness, Google and WebMD have somewhat changed that rarefied position, but now the role of the physician is to curate the information that goes to the patient. So that's why you want to ask, what am I, what didn't I ask that I need to know? Because there, there are probably two or three things that are going to make that visit to the doctor invaluable to you that if you just would have asked, you might get. Do you think, doctor, that the doctors or the physicians themselves are receptive to the patients, the 70-plus patient coming in, for instance, an elderly patient, asking these three questions? That's not put offing, or I think sometimes older patients think or they're afraid to ask even those three questions, which obviously are... (laughs) Um, should yeah so and that's that that's kind of as a social worker I I know that that is part of the problem Um, and they sort of get they get into the office and and uh, talk to the doctor and they just feel that you know they don't have a right to ask these questions to begin with ah so Catherine thank you you have basically you've set me up beautifully so thank you very much (laughs) Um, that's the other thing about being a partner is you do have rights and if you're in an or if you're in a practice where you're you're not comfortable or the um, or the uh, practice isn't comfortable with you asking what I consider very basic and very important questions to your health, then you may not be in the right practice. And so patients have rights, and that's I think something that gets missed in a lot of the conversations. We have a right as patients to have reciprocity in our relationships. And we have a right to choice, and we do have an absolute right to clarity with the medical care that we're receiving. The thing that has shifted over the 20 years is the rise of the role of business and the rise of the the financial responsibility for the consumer. So in all fairness, even for the 70-year-old who's now making big, big payments on their Medicare or their Medicare um, subsidizing plans, you you do have a right, and what's more, you probably have a financial responsibility to ask these questions. Yeah. 
I think that's a great example. And you're talking about financial responsibilities. I mean, if you go to your financial advisor, if you're 70 plus or whatever, or 50 plus, uh, people usually don't have too much difficulty asking those questions to their financial advisor. So I guess if you, you, you get into a different you get into the same mindset, I guess, when you're going to your physician. You're buying a product. You're buying a product. You're you're and and you have the right to. Yeah, I, I want to give you an example because you gave uh, this is yeah. uh, happened to me because it sort of illustrates what you're talking about. I went to a new ophthalmologist. My other one retired, so I did. You know, I had done all my. Uh, homework and I had found an ophthalmologist that I wanted to see in a certain practice for a lot of reasons because of her expertise and her education, et cetera, and uh, made an appointment and that was fine. And I got there and I get into the, you know, the room where they examine your eyes and the the uh, nurse or the technician said, you're going to see Dr. So-and-so. And I and it began the letter of you know, it was a similar kind of name to who, who I had uh, made the appointment with. I said, I don't think that's who I made the appointment with. She said, oh, well, it doesn't really make any difference. You know, she, you know, Dr. So-and-so is here. I said, well, it does make a difference to me because I really want to see the person. I'll come back. I mean, it wasn't, emer- it was a, uh, obviously not an emergency. Well, the other physician was available. I did see her, uh, but I had to speak up. It wasn't, you know, and because, I mean, I think that's an example of what you're talking about. Um Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'll I'll say this. So both my husband and I are physicians, and physicians aren't even immune to this. So um, I'll give you a good example. My husband has um, cervical, he basically has bulging discs in his neck. And so we went and saw the doctor because he's having so much pain. This is a very common problem for people as they age. So we get to the doctor's office, and this is someone, by the way, that I, I know that I've worked with. But with the office, we check in. Uh, They had a new check-in process. It was on an iPad. It took us, no joke, 45 minutes for the two physicians to fill in the paperwork to get into the office. We turn in the iPad, and we wait, and we wait, and we wait. And finally, I walked up there, and I said, excuse me, but we've been waiting for, you know, 45 minutes since we turned in our paperwork. And they said, oh, sorry, the doctor went to lunch. And honestly, I was kicking myself because I should have asked, you know, how long yeah. is it going to be? What's the next step? But I didn't. And I, it was one of those check-ins with something just as simple because it was noon of asking how long is this going to be? But instead yep. it was like, oh, well, do you want to come back in two hours? No, <laughs> I've got stuff to do. I want you yeah. to get the doctor. So yeah. I, I, let me put it this way. I think, I think getting comfortable that this is a right it's a right, you know, you have a right to see whom you want. You have a right to be treated in a fair and responsible way. And, you know, if I'm really transparent, because I practiced for almost 20 years. I think the fundamental shift in practices that has occurred, and in large part this is driven by business, is that 20 years ago the practices were set up for the pleasure of the physician. And what I mean by that is the schedules were for the physician. The offices were set for the physician. And now as more and more of that financial burden gets placed on us as consumers, that relation, that kind of the way the practices were set up 20 years ago must change to serve the consumer. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, and also, you know, that question that the uh, whoever the, the person at the desk said, can you come back in two hours? One has to think, my time is valuable too. The physician's time yeah. is valuable. The lawyer's time is valuable. The 
whoever, you know, wherever you work, your, your time is valuable. And you have to think of that. I think that's another consideration. You know, I can't sit here for two hours uh, while you go to lunch. I mean. Um, well, and maybe I need to add to the, to the rights is that we have a right to be treated with respect. And that means respect of time, as you say, respect of time, but also respect of our money as far as not wasting our financial resources doing unnecessary things in the, in the treatment of us as well. So, I mean, when I, when I kind of think through what are the rights of patients, we actually have a fair amount of rights. Whether we choose to exercise them or not is up to us. Yeah, well, as you say in your book, ask, ask, ask. That's Absolutely. our right to ask, ask, ask. And yeah. we do it, it, which is interesting. I think just, you know, in terms of attitude, we really do seem to do it in most other areas of our lives. We have no, you know, if we're buying a used car, we ask, ask, ask. <laughs> so why don't we want to ask, you know, this is, one of, this is, you know, one of the most important things that, uh, uh, you know, services that we have in our lives, but we, we, we don't ask. And, right, uh, and I- and I think what's happened over the last 20 years is the sacrosanct nature of the relationship has been demystified. If you will, we're now peeking behind the curtain. And much like it was in The Wizard of Oz, when you peek behind the curtain, there's just a little man there from Kansas. I think yeah. we're seeing yeah. that, that that's true, that physicians are human beings, and that they, are, they are also have wants and needs. Um, and interestingly, for as much as we're talking about consumers, bear in mind not only are consumers dissatisfied, but physicians are also dissatisfied with how this relationship is working as well. So for as much as it may be uncomfortable to ask questions, my guess is a physician would really welcome that type of transparency and honesty and that type of engagement. Um, Most of the people that I know, and I'm a Gen X or borderline baby boomer, most of my peers that are physicians would actually really welcome that because it helps solve the issue of what do you want because I'm not 100% sure. And I do want to provide good service to you. I just don't know how to do it. And and I think the other thing is um, today uh, physicians – Everyone specializes, so the expect it isn't. First of all, it's never going to be the doctor that's going to be able to tell you everything about everything that's wrong with you. It, it's it, it's you know they have their specialties, and so yes. um, I think that's always re- important to remember as well. Uh, and even pharmacy, I know I go and I'll get medication, and sometimes I feel I get more information from the pharmacist in terms of whether something's contraindicated when I'm taking one pill or another pill and uh, than I would if I asked the physician, for example. And and I don't dispute that at all, uh, particularly around meds and just the, you know, the, the reality is with the generics and everything else, I think the pharmacists have become an invaluable resource for that. So what other questions should we, um, those are the three basic questions. Yeah. yeah. So let's get, you know, further into this. What other questions should, should we be asking? And should you always go to the doctor, for instance, let's say you have something or you're there to discuss something serious. It's, uh, do you, should you bring some, you know, in sort of social workers, you, you know, in hospitals will always say you need an omnibudsman, you know, you need somebody there yeah. to speak up for you. But even when you go to the doctor's office, if you feel uncomfortable and you can't ask these questions, Bring someone with you who can? Yes. I, I always recommend that. And there's been a lot of literature, particular, I mean, Catherine, I'm sure you're aware of this as a social worker, lots of literature that if there's something serious or something, I would say, of emotional heightened state, 
you do want to bring a buddy with you because you're not going to be able to capture all the information that's given to you. As the person is the recipient, you may capture at best 20, 25%. So I think it is important to bring a buddy with you. The other thing that I became acutely aware of when I practiced medicine is that everyone comes into a doctor's office with their own bias and kind of what they, what they have the ability to listen to. So having an additional set of ears allows you to have a different perspective on what's occurred in the office. And I, I think that is invaluable at a visit as well. Um, you know, it's, I, I mean, I, I used the example earlier in the interview that I went with my husband to see the um, orthopedic surgeon, surgeon in regards to his neck. And I went with him yesterday as a, to the physical therapist as his first visit, not because my husband, a physician, wasn't smart, didn't know how to ask questions. I, hadn't, I have effectively trained him on the same <laughs> protocols that we're talking about on, on this interview. But the reality is, as a person who's in pain, as a person who's suffering, his ability to really objectively take in all that information isn't at 100%. And so instead of worrying, did I miss something or actually missing something, he brought me along to ask to act as his advocate during the visit. And I do that, I, I mean, we, we do that for my parents. We do that for my mother-in-law. It's just something that we do. We find that the quality of the medicine they receive is actually better, but their satisfaction is also better. Yeah, that's good advice. Um, a question I have is like, what look, looking on at, uh, say I'm the consumer, uh, yeah. what are the doctors talking about behind closed doors? <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, I'm going to lose my doctor asking? card. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, the number one thing that doctors are talking about is this, it, and it, it's really probably one of the reasons I wrote the book. For as dissatisfied as patients are, physicians are dissatisfied as well because they're not actually getting to do what they went to med school for. The American Medical Association really uh, recently released a study that said 75% of people went into medicine as physicians to help patients. I mean, they really did go in for altruistic reasons. And 50% of people went in as a calling. They thought it was a higher calling. So when, when a patient goes in, and, the, and the, the expression I often say is, my eyes are up here, meaning meet me eye to eye and get your eyes out of the computer, physicians don't like that either. There's also another survey that shows that for every hour a, pa- a physician spends with a patient, they're actually spending two hours on the computer. And what we need to appreciate is that's not what we want as physicians either. So we need to swing the, we need to either come up with better ways, better process, better technology, so that we can go back to what, as physicians, we want to do, which is actually spend time with patients. Patients want doctors to spend time with them, and, and what I'd love to share with your audience is physicians want to spend time with their patients. It's just the the business, the regulation, everything else has basically pushed those two parties, which should be engaged partners, Instead of pushing them together, it's pushed them apart. And I think we see that play out on a national level with expense and dissatisfaction um, and burnout uh, on, a, on a national scale. So we're talking about the business of medicine. And I know I, if, when I've gone to di- different physicians, one of the things I find is that some physicians uh, who have big practices, most of them yeah. don't practice alone anyway today, but 
they know how to, they run a good business. And I, I always, yeah. you know, I, and I'll go to others' practices where they don't know how to run a good business and they may have a big practice. So some physicians, I guess, have, you know, some go back and get MBAs as well as an MD, but it also involves hiring somebody. And my friends who are physicians will say, this is not such an easy thing to do, but who can run a good office. I mean, that that's key, which covers up some of the stuff that you're talking about. Absolutely. So, so as the CEO that represents the organization that basically we advocate for the business of medicine and medical practices, I absolutely support what you just said, Catherine. I think some people do it well and some people do it poorly. I think some people view medicine as a business and your business is a personal service business, not unlike an accountant or an attorney, et cetera, and that there's a responsibility to treat the patient well because they're your consumer and, and your client. Um, and I do, without a shadow of a doubt, I think there's a much higher burden on a physician than there is an attorney or accountant, but I think that business principle of running it efficient and smart and respectful is really the key pathway to success. Um, I actually, I think it's 15 years ago, went and got a business degree, a, a medical master uh, MBA effectively, um, because I was running multiple practices and I thought business is a lever arm to move the world and I need the credibility of the business degree. What I can tell you is I don't think that physicians need an MBA to run a medical practice. What they do need is an entrepreneurial spirit and a recognition that the practice isn't just a tool to generate money. The practice, sir, is a much, much more vibrant ecosystem, if you will, where you're actually probably providing the highest service to another human being. You're healing them, and you're getting compensated for that. But you need to remove all the barriers between appropriate compensation and delivery of the best quality of care. I think that practices who embrace that that's their mission thrive, flourish, grow. And I think practices who don't view medicine as a business or worse, view view it as a tool to generate cash, ultimately fail. What about the use of computers uh, in, in terms of like, you know, you mentioned you were in the office for 45 minutes filling out all these forms. Can't yeah. we bypass that and do that online before you get to the physician's office? Aren't we? Oh. Or do, yeah. Yeah. So 90% of medical practices have patient portals. In other words, 90% of practices have a way for you to access and do paperwork online. The statistic shows that about 3 to 5% of people actually do that. And it's for a variety of reasons. You know, if we're talking about an audience that's 70 plus, they may not be comfortable doing that online, although I actually believe that people are growing more and more comfortable doing that. The other part of it is the practice may not communicate that that's what you need to do. Um, the really interesting thing about technology, so I've put lump computers in here, is that I think medicine has what I call a Jessica Rabbit problem, meaning I'm not bad, I'm just drawn that way. I think the rise of technology in medical practice was always something really good. We want patients to be able to take their medical record wherever they go. We want doctors to have access to every medical procedure your particular patient has, has undergone. The challenge is that's actually not the reality of what's occurred. And because we haven't really looked at the systems from the standpoint of, what is the best way for a patient, a 
physicians engage with the patient, but we've rather developed these systems as to either address regulatory issues, so burden put on us by the government, sometimes appropriate, sometimes not, or um, worse, business systems are driving the technology that's in the office, and as patients and as providers, we need to say, stop, let's not add any more technology that interferes with our relationship, let's add the technology that actually enhances it. That said, and we only have a few more minutes left, what kinds of patients, what are the most difficult, let's say, patients or diagnoses that you have to deal with that that become problematic, um, that make it more difficult to communicate with the patients, with the families? You know, just give us some examples. Mm, if there Give are. me a little more a little more background on your question. All right. Well, I was saying, like, you have had experience. Okay, we're talking about the patients. I mean, overall, generally, we began the interview with the three questions yeah. and what you should ask and what, uh, you know, just basic kinds of questions. Who is it more, and we've talked about the elderly, but are there specific examples where you, you personally or uh, colleagues have had, like, yeah. you know, there are patients who really find it difficult to communicate, and if you can't communicate with your doctor, um, like, should you not, maybe there's a personality problem. Maybe you're going to somebody who is really Absolutely. qualified, but yeah. you just can't communicate with them. I'll give you I'll give you an example, and actually, it's an example that I've often, uh, from my own practice, that I've often thought about over the last twenty years. So, one of the so I'm a pediatrician, and um, one of the hot topics, of course, is vaccinations. So, if you ask a pediatrician, you know they're ninety nine point nine 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 percent of pediatricians are massive advocates of vaccines. They prevent disease, they prevent life, uh, life-threatening complications, et cetera, et cetera. It's just, you know, it's kind of part and parcel of what we do. But a lot of patients are not comfortable getting vaccines and uh, have concerns about it, have fears about it. So I happen to be practicing at the time when there was a study about how the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine was related to autism. Now, and that study came out of England. In the United States, we had no such evidence. We were still pushing, giving the measles, monster Bella vaccine. A lot of parents weren't comfortable. And so there was always that conflict. So there were, there were a couple ways we could choose to deal with it. I had colleagues who said, if you don't get vaccines, I'm not going to see you. I had colleagues who said, Let's, if you agree to alternative vaccine schedules, I'll see you, but we have to commit to this or that. And I've often thought about, in a, in a this is a, intersection of public health, personal belief, and risk, what was the best way to handle that? And to me, the best thing to do is to actually have the conversation, What do you, you know, to actually spend the time. And I, I think I probably spent a couple hours a day when this was going on engaging these conversations. What are your fears? What, what, what are, you know, what's the likelihood this could happen? What, you know, what are, in where I was practicing, the actual risk of these things occurring are actually very real because a lot of people choose not to get immunized. So ironically, if everyone got immunized, the likelihood of these diseases would occurring is pretty low, but because a lot of people are now choosing not to, we actually have seen measles in our community. So, and measles is a life-threatening disease. So, you know, having those conversations. So for me, 
getting back to I hate to cut question. you Catherine. off, but that's a, we have one minute left, Doctor. But you know yeah. that's a great example, and there are. Yeah. I mean that because that conversation I've heard. I'm still hearing that conversation yeah. with. Yeah, that that uh, so, you. So yeah, my point is, lots, it goes but, back yeah. to your, your rights. You have your right to basically be in a reciprocal relationship where your part your clinical partner has respect. To me, that was the highest expression of that of that problem. Yeah. Great. Well, we have to, you know, to know more, we have to get read your book. So Back to Balance, The Art, Science, and Business of Medicine. You can buy it online, bookstores everywhere, Amazon.com. Just give us a website that we can go to. Um, yes. Dr. Haley Fisher-Wright, MD. Yes, it's a www.drhalee.com, Dr. Haley. Great. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Thank you very much. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Aliens with Gas, we are the Extraterrestrial Rock Show, airing every Saturday afternoon on the VoiceAmerica.com Variety Channel. <laughs> Whatever happens out and about, it kind of dictates our conversation. For sure. And we like to tie in a little bit of the past and obviously keep it real current. And real current was a couple nights ago right here in Phoenix, a phenomenon happened. On Thursday night. Phenomenon. 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 All right, never mind. <laughs> That's every Saturday right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you are listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is self-defense and criminal expert Steve Cardian. Uh, His new book is The New Superpower for Women. Trust your intuition, predict dangerous situations, and defend yourself from the unthinkable. As a police officer, detective, chief investigator, and FBI defensive tactics instructor, Steve Cardian has investigated thousands of crimes against women. He found most of the women felt something that was off about their situation beforehand, but didn't know if or how to react to their sense of unease. Steve combines practical advice with illuminating real-life stories to empower women to do everything in their power to defend themselves against predators. He's been featured on NBC, CBS, Dr. Phil, Wall Street Journal, New York Times. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here, Steve. Nice to be here, Catherine. Thank you for having me. 
right? So you are going to help empower us women so that we will be empowered and be able to exercise that power when we confront uh, these predators that you that we're talking about in your book. So the new superpower for women. So what are the issues? Why do you know what we're not empowered now, I guess we don't seem to understand what we need to do or how we need to do it if we're confronted with somebody who is a predator. Um, what do we do? Well, no, not necessarily true that, that you know that you're not already empowered. I, I, the the uh, the subtitle tells it all. It's trust your intuition, predict dangerous situations, and defend yourself from the unthinkable. For the you know, in addition to my law enforcement, for the last thirty years, I've been teaching women's safety and self defense. As a matter of fact. At Defend University, we create instructors all across the country and around the world, uh, the, the U.S. Marines, the uh, United States Air Force, that teach their, the, their readiness and deployment people that they're, you know, when their husbands deploy, they train these women and they give them some very important things to do. Now, self-defense is a, a big part of what we do. There's only one chapter in the book about self-defense, uh, however, because we recognize certainly it's a last resort. And, you know, having investigated thousands of crimes against the women and having investigated, uh, having uh, studied even more, uh, we have come up with a variety of things that will help women prevent something bad from happening, them, whether it be in a social situation uh, or a stranger, if you will. Who are, okay, that gets, who are the predators? Who do we have to, I mean, as you say, we need to use our intuition. Are we sometimes not aware of, like, who those predators may be? I mean, you know, we're not talking about serial killers all the time. It may be, what, it could be anybody. So let's talk about the predators. Like, who are we looking at? Well, let me give you an example. In a social experiment I did with Inside Edition, this has never been done in the country before, I went onto a college campus, and my job on camera with hidden, hidden cameras and, and, and a hidden camera and audio team and a producer, my job was to stop young women leaving the campus. And I stopped eight women, eight young girls. And my job was to try and lure myself into their car. And how many of the eight do you think let me in their car and drove off with me in less than 30 seconds? I bet almost all eight of them. All eight. All eight did. So what I was doing was I was, as the predator does, I was selecting the soft target. Now, that was the girl or woman that was reading her text, that was speaking on her cell phone, that was eating her lunch, reading her notes, or just coming out and being, wow, it's such a beautiful day, and just being sort of oblivious to her surroundings. The woman, the students, the ladies that walked out and scanned the parking lot. Maybe they saw me, maybe they didn't. They were the ones that I didn't, I didn't approach because they were the hard targets. So I targeted the soft targets. And actually, with, with Inside Edition and with NBC and other outlets, you know, I've, I've been able to show out of 21 out of 21 women that I, I, I targeted uh, for this social experiments that would have been compromised, God forbid, had I been a real predator, that they would have been, you know, compromised in what I was doing. And that includes going in, uh, into the New York City nightclub scene and approaching women that were my daughter's age and offering them a drink. And I had five women in an hour accept a drink from me, drink the drink with me under the presumption, not only who I was, where I came from, under the presumption it contained a date rape drug, uh, a GHB or gamma hydroxybutyrate. 
So, so there are certain things, and when you ask, you know, who are the predators? Well, you know, typically it's not the masked man that jumps out of the bushes. It's typically for sexual assault, we'll say, uh, and, and related crimes. It's going to be somebody you know, 70 to 75%. And on the college campus, it's going to be well into the 90th percentile, the person you're going to know. And it's, it, it's not going to be necessarily, you know, a, a friend or someone that purports to be a friend. It could be somebody that sits across the room from you in class, somebody that you met at a party, somebody that you see every day when you go to pick up your coffee. Uh, so it's, it's more common, certainly, that it's, it's someone we know. So it's someone we know, and the person that we know, who could be the predator, really do know, they know who they can do it to, I guess is what you're saying, right? They have a good well, sense. Well, they're looking for certain things. They're looking for that soft target. They're looking for, for example, on the college scene, we're getting ready to send our female loved ones back to college. And, you know, it's called the red zone. Between September and Thanksgiving, recess is the most dangerous time in a young woman's life for sexual assault and, and other, other related crimes. Second most dangerous time in their life is, is sophomore year between the same time period. So uh, it, it's, it's a really dangerous time they're, they're going into. And, for example, but why girl, is it? Before you go, yeah, go ahead. I'm why, sorry. Why, why is that a dangerous time? Why are those, those, why are those the most dangerous times? Well, you know, I get asked that all the time uh, by parents. I, I was all, I've been lecturing at high schools and colleges. As a matter of fact, I was a, a professional speaker for Campus Speak for five years. I traveled the country lecturing on sexual assault prevention, dating violence, date rape, drugs, spring break issues, relationships. And I tell the parents, they are that age group, that group of seniors that's going into freshman year college. They are students in transition. And the reason that they are so vulnerable is that, number one, they're a little bit too young, they're a little bit too trusting, and they haven't yet developed the skills to deal with the predator. So they're taking from the protection of what they're used to in their community, their home, their school, and they're propelled into this experimental process called freshman year. And there are going to be people there that are in that institution for two, three, four maybe five, maybe six years more than them. And that's eons in a young girl's life. So, okay, so now we know what the, all right, so those are the, that's the most dangerous time. Uh, so then what, what do you do? What do you tell these? I mean, how do you prepare, which is what your book is about, how do you prepare these young women for particularly in, in those kinds of situations? Um, how do you keep yourself safe? Well, in, in, in that institution on the college campus, you know, we see several things. You know, you, you've got you've to you've have control of your drinking. The problem with the drinking is that, you know, a, a lot of students that age have very little experience. So what will kill an adult, what would kill someone your age, my age, would kill at 50% that amount a student with little to no uh, drinking experience. Now, Certainly, alcohol does a number of things. It's, it's a neurotoxin. It changes your inhibitions. It changes your reaction, both physically and mentally, to be able to deal with a particular situation. Um, you know, dealing with new people, you've got to select. You know, you, you want to you try and, you know, uh, develop a group of friends that watch out for one another. You go out as a group. You go home as a group. It doesn't always happen that way. And, and if, if, if you were able to read the book, you would see that I, I give things that they can do because you're going to go out a party and one, there might be a girl that wants to stay. There might be a girl that wants to leave the group. 
So there goes the concept, but we have things to do that, that can make them better. See, Okay, so tell us needs, things to do. Give us a real I like those examples and the examples you have in your book, but so give us some real-life examples. What do you do? Yeah, I'm sorry, for which, which realm? For you're talking about like if you're going out, we'll say freshman year, and you and you are going to be drinking, and you're in a situation whether it's a party or a bar, do you go out in groups? I mean, like an example, do you? Yeah, well, you you want to keep it to a minimum, more than more than five. There should be a designated in, in the perfect world, and we don't always live in the perfect world, of course. In the perfect world, you would have a designated mom, a designated captain, a, a designated overseer that would would be. Uh, not drinking and would be watching watching the young the young young ladies and y- you want to make sure that when you venture out that you bring enough cash to get home that you bring you have the number for the, you have the Uber and Lyft apps in your phone you want to make sure that you don't leave your drink alone never never accept a drink you know if you walk into a party a frat house and you know there's a guy with a drink and he hands don't drink it it is such a high risk and you don't know what's in it. You don't know what the concentration of alcohol. There used to be years ago when I was a bartender, uh, you know, people would try and slip a, a, a shot of vodka into a beer. And that almost triples, not quite, but almost triples the alcohol content in the beer. So you've got to be very careful. If you're in a, in a, in a bar or a club, you know, don't rely on the bartender or the bouncer. It's not their job. And there, there are bouncers and there are bartenders that are predators. And there are, are bartenders and, and bouncers that have acted in concert with the predator. If you go to the bathroom, so does your drink. If you go onto the dance floor, so does your drink. If you leave it behind, throw it away. It's not worth what the consequences might be. Well, they need to post, don't don't they? What you're talking about, your book, but you also shouldn't those that what you're talking about, what you're telling me, those things should be on in every girl's dormitory, shouldn't they? I mean, I oh I, sure, I really, yeah, uh, yeah. But remember, I mean, you know, they're they're young, they're out there, they're adventurous, they haven't been exposed to it. They everybody, you know, every all the girls I I have spoken to, and and I've investigated thousands of crimes against the women. You know, one of the things they say is that I never thought it could happen to me. I didn't think it would happen to me. All right, now we're talking about young girls. Let's also now let's just talk about in general. I mean, that's a college situation, obviously. Sure. Um, what about, okay, not a college situation. Uh, what are other examples of where we are as women going to, um, confront predators and we need to, uh, listen to our intuition and be careful. Give us some other scenarios, some other examples. Yeah, sure. I mean, look at the, the digital environment that we're in. Look at the numbers. The numbers are in the book on the increase in online dating. It's, it's, it's phenomenal. Um, you know, when women are going to engage in Internet dating, online dating, they, they have to realize one thing, that the only thing that they know about the person on the other end is that they have access to a computer. That's it. So they have to proceed very cautiously. They've got to look for red flags. They've got to ask questions over and over in different ways and see if they're getting different information. They try and extract as much information so that they can do an Internet search. Misspelled words, uh, a lack of uh, knowing the language uh, could be red flags. 
um, you know, I, I recently spoke on, on Dr. Phil on a case involving a, a Seattle nurse. And, you know, she was dating the guy and didn't know that he was homeless, uh, didn't know that he had been uh, arrested in five states. And they went to a, a Seattle, uh, I think it was a Seattle Mariners game. They came home. Uh, and very sadly, uh, she was she was mur- murdered in a horrible way, horrible way. It was it was a national national case, and you know if if she had known that, I, I don't think that she would have dated him. But there are some really smooth operators out there. It's not the masked man that jumps out behind a tree. The predator can be very you know charismatic. You know that the sociopath and psychopath. You know, that you can go through that. They can be wonderful, and then all of a sudden you see what they really are about. Yeah. But it's so difficult when you're doing, because I'm glad you gave that example, online dating. And and I have a friend who who does online dating. And this amazed me. It sort of goes against everything what you're talking about. She met this guy online, uh, a, a professional, and seems to be a professional. I mean, looks really good. I don't know how you can tell whether or not he is or isn't. Uh, went out with him once, dinner, fine. Went out again the second time, uh, wanted to come up to her apartment, and she said no. I mean, this is the second time she met this person, right? And several of her girlfriends said, well, why not? You know, you should have invited him up. He's And I, I was really the only one who said, why would you do that? I mean, you've only met this guy once. But, I mean, I think that's pretty typical. And, you know, they have to understand that, you know, he's a stranger. No, you don't know him outside of the social realm. You don't know that guy that you sit next to at work, you know, and he asks you out on a date. You only know him in that environment. You don't know what he is behind closed doors. So, you know, it, it takes a long time, you know, being in the, in, in the field, that front stage, backstage. takes That front stage it takes a long time to see the backstage in some people. It takes a long time to, to know them. And we go under the presumption, and we know as fact, actually, is that the predator needs isolation and control. Had she gone, if she went, up to his, his apartment or dorm, she has given him that isolation and control should he be an aggressive or, or worse than aggressive, be, be a violent or dangerous individual. Yeah. Well, so how do you stay safe online? And that's one of the questions you answer in your book. What do you do? I mean, is it going to be any safer the third date or the fourth date? Or, because you don't meet these people in your own community. You don't meet other people who know them in your community. You don't have all of that information. Yeah, you know, when, when you speak to the real experts, the real, you know, Internet security people that do it 24-7, they, they suggest meeting in real life. You venturing out into that world, it, it, it's high-risk behavior. Um, you can't. You don't have the ability. You have a better ability to judge in person. You have a better ability, you know, to see how he treats other people. To see, you know, even in a restaurant, how he orders. Is he the salesman type? Is he bossy? Is he pushy? Is he condescending of other people? Of, of course, those are all things. But when you're dealing with people, what we suggest in the book is that. Spend time on the site before you exchange phone numbers or emails. Don't accept any gifts, not, not even to your work, not even to your mother's house, not even to your best friend's house. Accept nothing. They, it's called, it's called, we have what, what is called catfishing, where they're trying to harm you in some way by stealing your identity uh, or befriending you to, to, to cause you harm. So, you know, the, right now, the Internet, the security on the Internet, there really is no Internet police. 
so your your vulnerability is high. Your protection is paper thin. And, you know, we, we've got the dark net. We've got, for our young, the FBI cites sextortion as one of the most uh, global threats to our female young that's going on in this country right now. Yeah, sextortion. I was going to ask you that in my next question because I didn't know what it was, um, you know, in, until I saw your book. So what is sextortion? Sextortion is where either remotely or, or, or it's usually done remotely, but it can be done, you know, certainly in person, where they in, in, install spyware or what we refer to as creepware. And what they do is they target young girls between the age of 12, 13, all the way up to 17. And when they're asked, why don't you target, old, target older girls? Well, well, you know, that, that we wouldn't be able to get over on uh, the, the older girls. And what they do is they spend time taking videos and taking pictures of, of the girls that don't have their camera protected. You know, m- most of them have them in their dorm or their bedroom. And they take compromising pictures and videos. And at some point, they reach out to them, send them those videos, and then they try and extort additional uh, horrible tapes. They try and get them to do things that are more descript and 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 despicable. They may ask them to go on chat, chat, uh, Snapchat for five minutes or send more pictures. Uh, sometimes they may extort money, um, and you know, often they're very hard to find. You know, they're they're overseas. They could be here using routers from anywhere in the world. Uh, you know, the dark net is a really horrible place. Yeah. I mean, it's, it sounds terrifying, um, and especially, well, if you're a parent, obviously, and, and, and you have a, a daughter, as you're talking, between the ages of 12 and 17, um, what about how do you, just this is kind of, a, this is another topic, but um, how do you, you talk about how you can protect yourself physically, but not necessarily with karate. I mean, there are other ways of protecting yourself or reality-based self-defense, as you call it. Well, years ago, my partner in Phoenix, Arizona, was approached, this is how we started the program, about 20 years ago, approached by a group of survivors of sexual assault, domestic violence, kidnapping, date rape, and they asked him to put together a program to address those issues physically. And he began teaching them some pretty cool martial art things and he found out two things. Number one, they couldn't retain the techniques in a 30 to 60 minute class. Number two, he was teaching them how to fight like a man. Now you teach a woman how to fight like a man, typically in that dynamic, they're usually bigger, stronger, more pain tolerant and men have a reptilian brain. So if you've seen a real street fight, guy punches, guy punches back, guy kicks, guy kicks back, guy bites, guy bites back. So conceivably, if a woman, in a traditional sense, that's taught in most martial art you know, schools, it's going to punch him back or kick him back, she's going to get punched back or kicked back considerably harder. Now, if you're not one that has been punched in the face before or in the head or hit in that manner, it's like a lightning bolt going through your head and it takes the fight right out of you. So he reversed that process and began teaching them how to fight like a woman or fight like a girl for the younger girls, uh, using their bigger, stronger, more powerful weapons, and using and employing leverage technique and timing. So in, in essence, he put them in positions that they found themselves in if they were being violated in some way, shape, or form, and he found it highly effective because it's not new to them anymore. They're able to control their adrenal response. In my investigations in 30 years, I have investigated sexual assaults with high-level martial art females, and they have been sexually assaulted by their non-martial art acquaintances or boyfriends. 
And it was devastating to them. At some point in the investigation, we get to speak about that. And they're, they're like, I just can't believe it. It, it, it. What In a nanosecond, what went through my head is, this is not what, this is not what I learned. This is, this is not working for me. And it, it breaks them down and it sets them back. Uh, not only, of course, the sexual assault sets them back initially, but if they believed that they were able to take care of themselves and they're shown otherwise, it's, it's crushing you know, to somebody that spent 10 years learning a martial art. Now, is this, what about the, the the freezing? You talk about that. We only have a few minutes left. So that was something sure. you said. Yeah, because I think that's important. I think that's probably what I would do. Uh, people, te- you say people tend to freeze. I guess this is men and women uh, or panic in emergencies. I mean, like, you know, and, and as you say, if this has never happened to you before. You've never been in this situation with a, you know, a predator accosting you or whatever. Sure. You kind of, you do freeze, like having had no experience. How, you know, how do you, what do you do? Well, first of all, you, you read the chapter on blueprint. You want to create a blueprint, which is a plan of action for anything and everything. So if you vividly sit down and think about a problem, somebody breaking in your home, how you're going to deal with it, you know, and you create a plan of action, your mind, if you do it vividly, we call it emergency conditioning in, in the military, we call it visualization in law enforcement, create a plan of action, has you be better able to control that adrenal response that could bring you into the black zone and, and freeze. So real quick, at 115 beats per minute, you lose your fine motor skills between 115 and 145 you lose your complex motor skills which are most what is taught in a karate program uh at 145 to 175 beats our techniques which are gross motor skills thrive in that area so they're they're very effective and by putting them in the position they find themselves in they will be able to control that adrenal response be able to respond and not have that extreme tunnel vision, auditory exclusion, and or freeze at 175 or above in, in, in terms of heartbeat. Yeah, I, I think one of the things at Blueprint, that's a, uh, I think that's obviously that's really important. Like think ahead, plan ahead, visualize. I, I mean, I have like, <laughs> I was buying flashlights uh, a couple weeks ago, and then I saw one of these huge flashlights that looked like a weapon, and the guy said, well, this is what the police use. It's like a mag light. So I bought one of those and put it beside my bed. Is that a good thing to have? Uh, sure, sure. <laughs> I, I'm a big advocate of pepper spray. Uh, the, the one that's wrapped around your hand, actually, I, I carry a Tiger Light Dad. Uh, it's it's a device that's wrapped around your hand because you know when you're frightened you're scared you have that autonomic response where your hands will open you know like if you ever you've you've been holding something or wherever and somebody comes up and spooks you you, yeah that's you drop things so with that being wrapped around your hand not only is a gps alert and a flashlight but it will remain in your hand so that you can use a pepper grade law enforcement grade pepper spray but anything you use i suggest strongly practice with so you're familiar with it so then at a time of crisis you can go to it use it apply it and apply it effectively yeah i mean common sense it really makes sense i mean you've got all this great stuff in the book um then i want to mention the book again because well we still only have a couple minutes the new superpower for women the trust your intuition predict dangerous situations and i guess that's what we predict them and defend yourself from the unthinkable i mean i get the title really says it all so steve uh, website that we can go to uh, to we can buy your book amazon.com bookstores everywhere but more information about you and your book sure uh, stevecardian.com uh, or defenduniversity.com 
you know, you can go into YouTube and there's a, there's a ton of uh, media segments on safety that I've done on the national media level. Um, you know, it, it's all about taking stay, uh, staying safe and, you know, empowering people with knowledge and information than they, that they don't have. So when I speak about empowerment, I don't say, oh, I need, to, I need to empower you with knowledge and information you don't know. I need to transmit what I know and what experts know to you so that you can be safer in your world, whatever that is. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning. My pleasure, Catherine. Thank you. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff, and management. I'm busy and so is my family. Leftover pizza and unhealthy takeout isn't really doing it for us anymore. Just ask my bathroom scale. That all changed when I found Freshly. For less than $10 a meal, Freshly delivers six meals a week, always fresh, never frozen, prepared by top chefs and nutritionists using the best, freshest, gluten-free ingredients. The best part is the menu is always new and fresh